Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump's urgent appeal to the Supreme Court to get back on the ballot in Colorado. Former president says that January 6th wasn't an insurrection, and even if it was, he didn't engage in it. Also, names are dropping tonight, some big names, in the long-secret Jeffrey Epstein case files. Who else has now been linked to the dead sex offender? And a mystery tonight after twin bombings have killed over 100 people in Iran at a memorial for the man who was once known as Iran's shadow commander who was killed in a U.S. airstrike ordered by then-President Trump. These bombs today exploded just feet from the Iranian general's tomb. The question still tonight is who did it? I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, Donald Trump has officially filed that appeal to overturn last month's explosive ruling from Colorado's high court that declared he was ineligible to appear on the state's primary ballot, determining that he had engaged in an insurrection. The new appeal tonight is only raising new pressure on the nine justices that you see here to settle this matter once and for all or potentially risk chaos in a presidential election year. With similar battles over the ballot and Trump bubbling up in other states as well, we're left with a key question tonight. Can the former president be disqualified from holding public office again under the Constitution's insurrectionist ban, and do states get to make that decision? Trump has also appealed the decision in Maine that happened to remove him from its ballot. That was to the state court there after that decision from the Secretary of State last week. As for the arguments in this new appeal tonight, Trump and his lawyers are claiming that there are many grounds they believe for reversal, alleging that January 6th wasn't an insurrection, even if it were, that Trump didn't engage in it, and that questions of presidential eligibility are reserved for Congress only to resolve. I should note, all of this is coming, as you just heard Anderson talking about those town halls, 12 days before the first votes are going to be cast in the nation in Iowa. It also comes as we are learning that Trump is making plans to attend next week's arguments in a federal appeals court here in Washington on the subject of whether or not he's immune from prosecution for actions that he took while he was president, presidential immunity. The Supreme Court has declined to fast-track taking up that case on a previous request from the special counsel, Jack Smith, but this case also appears headed for the nine justices to decide. Are you sensing a pattern here? Because we are. I want to bring in Eric Olson, the attorney who is representing the plaintiffs in this case, the voters who sued to remove Trump from the ballot in Colorado. And Eric, it's great to have you here tonight. What is your response to the arguments that the Trump legal team is laying out in this appeal tonight? Thanks, Caitlin. Our response is that this is more of the same. They basically claim that the Colorado Supreme Court got everything wrong when, in fact, they issued a thorough, detailed opinion affirming the trial court's finding that Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection against the Constitution and holding that the Constitution applies to him just like it applies to all of us. So you don't think that any of the arguments that they're making here, in your view, are valid? 
Well, there are arguments we've all seen before and have been, been rejected by the courts. Uh, he claims here, I guess, the one new thing is he claims for the first time that no court, not even the United States Supreme Court, can determine whether someone engaged in an insurrection and that he's above any judicial determination of what he did leading up to and on January 6th. That's just not the law, and we're confident the Supreme Court will reject that claim. Well, you know what I'm interested in, part of the argument here, and this is something that we have gone round and round about when talking about this issue with, with legal experts, constitutional law experts, and it's an argument that, as the Trump legal team says here, even if the Supreme Court in Colorado could consider challenges to Trump's eligibility, that they misapplied the law because the president is not an officer of the United States and never took an oath as one, and that the presidency is not an office under the U.S. Caitlin, that argument has been raised several times. The overwhelming majority of scholars reject it, and properly so, because to, to give that argument effect would mean that Jefferson Davis, who led the Confederacy, led the Civil War against the United States, could have become its president shortly thereafter. There's no indication in the historical record that that's what anyone intended. It was a broad ban applying to all those who held office, office and were officers, and the president was and is both. So even in, as they kind of point out that there are other parts in the Constitution where it does lay out officers of the United States and it lists the presidency separately, you don't think that, that it's separate, even though it's referenced separately, separately in other parts of the Constitution? No, we think that the court, the Colorado Supreme Court, thoroughly addressed this question and properly held that the Constitution applies to everyone. And the purpose of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was to prevent those that took an oath to support our Constitution and then engage in insurrection from holding office again. And there is no reason whatsoever to think that they left out the most powerful person in our democracy, the president, from that prohibition. Again, Jefferson Davis could become president under this theory. There's no basis in law or history for that to be the case. When it comes to this and the questions of, you know, you look back at history and what it tells you, but when we're looking ahead to what the Supreme Court is going to do here, do you, do you think that they will take this case up? And if so, you know, are you still hoping to get a decision as soon as February 11th? We certainly expect they will take the case. Every party to the case has urged them to take it. We disagree a little about what, what questions they should take, but every party has urged them to take it. And if they don't take this one, there's more behind. There's ones coming from Maine and perhaps other states. So the court will need to address this, this case quickly. This is an ideal vehicle to do it. As to whether they'll decide it by February 11th, you know, voters in Colorado receive their ballots on February 12th. We've asked the court to, to, to work quickly here to issue uh, a briefing schedule, an argument schedule that allows them to complete a decision by February 11th so that those voters in Colorado and elsewhere on Super Tuesday have the benefit of knowing whether they, Donald Trump is disqualified. If they do take it, how tough do you think the fight's going to be for your side? I think this court has shown a willingness to step aside from sort of the partisan frame on these hard issues that are important to our democracy. We're optimistic that, as did the Colorado Supreme Court, that when you look closely 
at the legal arguments and evidence presented here, there really isn't a close case here. Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection against the Constitution, and therefore under the Constitution, he cannot be our president again. We'll see what the courts decide. If they do end up deciding here, Eric Olson, an attorney representing the plaintiffs here, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. And joining me now to break down this lengthy filing that we got, John Dean, former White House counsel to President Nixon, Ellie Honig, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and CNN's senior legal analyst and regular here on The Source. Ellie, so let me start with you, because you just heard uh, what Eric Olson was arguing there, how his assessment of reading this. What are the strongest points that you think the Trump legal team is making here and, and the weakest? Yeah, Caitlin. So Trump's brief, which was just filed earlier today, is 34 pages long. But let me break it down into sort of the four major arguments that Trump's team makes. Number one, he argues he did not engage in insurrection. I think that's a weak argument, first of all, on the facts. But second of all, the Supreme Court's not going to touch that. They're not a fact finder. They don't do trials. They generally won't make that kind of finding. Argument two that Trump makes is this is up to Congress. Congress has to tell us how this works. It's not up to the individual states. That would cause chaos. I tend to think that's a stronger argument. I think that would give us some sense of uniformity. There's ways to read the 14th Amendment either way on that. The third argument that Trump makes in the, in the brief is that even if it is up to the states, like Colorado, he says he was not given due process. Colorado did not follow its own rules, and the hearing that he was given was insufficient. I think that's a fairly close call. And then the fourth argument we just heard Mr. Olson responding to is this claim that the term officers, as it's used in the insurrection clause, does not include the president. I tend to side with Colorado and Mr. Olson on that one. You can carve that up linguistically either way, but I think just common sense, as Mr. Olson just said, how could it not apply to the president? But all of this is new, Caitlin. Whatever happens here, we're all going to learn together. Uh, John Dean, if you're a Supreme Court justice, what are you thinking about tonight, you know, as this is, it seems inevitable to land in their laps? Well, I think the the brief actually, uh, the petition anticipates the court in that they are very, very light on the argument that there was no insurrection and Trump wasn't involved. I don't think the court wants to go into that. As Ali said, there's a, a fact-finding body in Colorado that really looked thoroughly at that, did had a trial on it for five days, and uh, they're not going to go there. But so what I'm looking at is what is going to solve this problem statewide and nationally, if you will, uh, so that because it's going to come back up at the uh, level of the general election. So we need to get it resolved. Yeah, it could be chaos if they don't. Ellie, you know, we've been hearing from from Trump attorneys. I do wonder if to a degree part of the argument was that Trump wanted that included in this response to say that he didn't engage in the insurrection because he was you know, whenever that was determined by the courts in, in Colorado, by the secretary of state there, it was a, a sore point for him. But his attorney, Christina Bob, was talking about the application of the 14th Amendment. This is what she told, uh, what she said about that. Section three of the 14th Amendment doesn't even apply to the president. It's not self-executing. Uh, Donald Trump hasn't been charged with insurrection. And this is a question for the voters. The reason why it doesn't apply to the president was because the drafters of the 14th Amendment realized that the president is elected by the entire nation and it should be the entire nation who determines who they want for president, whether they're guilty of insurrection or not. Uh, Ellie, is that a strong legal argument in your view? <laughs> well, 
I agree with half of it. I agree when she says that it's not necessarily self-executing because section five of the 14th amendment says Congress has to pass laws telling us how this works and it's not left up to the state. That's what this sort of self-executing argument means. I disagree with the point she was making that it does not apply to the president. I do want to agree strongly with something that John Dean, Justice Dean just said that I think is a really important point. If the Supreme Court takes this case, there's a way they can decide it where they answer all of these challenges at once. If they say it's only up to Congress, all 50 states, that's it, we're done, no more of these challenges. But if they say, yes, the states can do as they please and Colorado did or did not meet that, then we're gonna have 49 other challenges. So they have a really important decision to make about how broadly they wanna cast their decision here. Well, that is an interesting question, John, that Ellie raises there, which is how they're approaching this. Because obviously, you know, we've seen the, the Supreme Court under a microscope in recent years. After the 2000, after the Bush v. Gore election or decision there, there was, you know, they took a hit to their standing, essentially. When it comes to how they could decide this, it's not just a yes or no. There are different ways and narrower scopes that we could see as an outcome from the Supreme Court of what this could look like, Right. That's right, Caitlin. And they may also wait a while. They don't have to take this petition immediately. They might want to see what other states do and not tip their hand as to how they feel about it. So uh, the problem is still young. The issue is growing. Uh, more states are. I think there's something like 14 states out there with this issue still brewing. So uh, who knows how they're going to resolve it. Uh, I think ultimately they're going to have to. There's no question it'll have to be resolved. Uh, before the end of the general election, but uh, when is still open, an open question. Ellie Honig, Justice John Dean, I like that, that name. Thank you both for joining tonight. <laughs> Up next here on The Thank Source, long-awaited documents have finally been unsealed. Names are being revealed of many people who were tied to sex offender Jeffrey Epstein after these names have been kept secret for years. Also tonight, a CNN First speaking with a new House speaker who went to the southern border today, talking about the Biden administration's handling of the crisis there. Back in a moment. Four years of anonymity for Jeffrey Epstein's friends and his business partners is ending at this hour tonight here at 9 o'clock on the East Coast as hundreds of court documents have now been unsealed. That includes revelations from depositions of women who once worked for the notorious sex trafficker. One such revelation just coming out involves a woman claiming that Jeffrey Epstein made startling comments about former President Bill Clinton, just one of the many powerful people expected to be named here. CNN's senior crime and justice correspondent Shimon Prokupes joins me now. Shimon, there's a very specific detail yeah. that just came out about the former president. What is that and what else can you tell us about this entire release overall. Yeah, and this is pretty much, uh, from our understanding, this is new information that's being released. And it came from a deposition uh, of a former employee, a woman who worked for Jeffrey Epstein. And she claimed uh, in her deposition that Epstein told her that the former president, quote, likes them young. Uh, she said that, uh, according to her, that uh, Bill Clinton uh, had a conversation with Jeffrey Jeffrey Epstein, that Epstein said that at one time uh, Clinton told him that uh, he likes them young or that Epstein said that he likes them young. 
The former president, obviously, uh, who there has been information out there about uh, his uh, association with Jeffrey Epstein. He's denied any wrongdoing. And, you know, in 2019, uh, he admitted that he had flown on Jeffrey Epstein's plane, but said that he knew nothing of his terrible crimes. And then today, a spokesperson again uh, denied that there was any wrongdoing uh, and that it's been nearly 20 years since President Clinton had any contact with Epstein and that Clinton has not been accused of any crimes or wrongdoing related to Epstein. Now, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of documents that were released late tonight. We are expecting many more documents to be released in the coming days. And the importance of all this, Caitlin, of course, is just the transparency, you know, for the victims, uh, for journalists who have been fighting for a lot of this information. This all stems from a lawsuit uh, that was brought by one of the victims against Epstein's former girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell. Uh, There was a lawsuit against her by one of the victims. And for years, uh, this lawsuit had gone on. They had eventually settled. And just now, all of this information uh, is coming out. Also, uh, Prince Andrews uh, is mentioned in these uh, documents. That is not new as well. That information has been out there previously. But, you know, there's still a lot more that we're trying to learn. And once more documents come out, we'll certainly uh, see those documents. As to Ghislaine Maxwell, of course, she was convicted back in 2021 of sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. And then, as you know, Jeffrey Epstein, he uh, died by suicide awaiting trial at a New York state jail. Shimon Porkipez, I know you're going to continue to look through this as you do. Uh, let us know and uh, stand by because we do have more news. I'm joined now by Lisa Bryant. She is the director of a documentary called Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, and has done extensive work on, on the life. And I just wonder, Lisa, what you make of these new revelations that are coming out tonight. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because I've been following this for a while. Sorry? Go ahead. Uh, I, I, yes, okay. <laughs> I heard someone talking. Um, I would be surprised uh, if I'm surprised by many of the names uh, that come out that are new because I've been investigating this for so long. Um, I do think many of these names have been reported. I mean, you know, Clinton, we've been hearing about for years. I do think that there will be, you know, some surprises, um, certainly for the general public that, that has not taken such a deep dive. Um, but I do think what will be interesting is, is like these new details, uh, about, you know, like President Clinton or Fitzer or things that are just coming out now. We didn't know that come out, uh, we hear from these depositions of these young women who said, uh, they might've been with some person and they named that person and that person's name comes out. So, um, it'll be very interesting to see because it's just happening in the moment now, um, you know, how many new surprises there are. And do I think that, um, you know, there's going to be more prosecutions or anything like that? Uh, I doubt it. Um, sadly, um, I spoke with a couple of the survivors tonight who were featured in the documentaries. Um, and they are, you know, on one hand, they're, they're relieved. They feel some sort of justice in this. Um, they feel you know, they want to keep the conversation going. But they don't have much hope in the government because they haven't done much over the years because, um, as you know, right now, the only person who has been prosecuted is is a woman, Ghislaine Maxwell, who certainly, um, you know, should be behind bars. Um, but, you know, even she's complaining that, you know, certainly there's so many other people involved. You know, it's interesting in this, you know, network of all these men who've been trafficking uh, you know, young women and underage women for decades. And yet the only person that's been prosecuted you know, is a woman. Uh, so yes, she should be behind bars and was yeah. convicted. 
but there are many, many other people that, you know, are, should be held accountable as well. I think that's a really important point, Lisa, on who is facing consequences for, for their actions here. It's interesting to hear how the survivors feel about this. So thank you for sharing that, Lisa Bryant. And I want to bring back in Shimon Procupes because, Shimon, uh, you are continuing to look through this. What else are you learning about who's named in this? So now we have a reference here to, uh, Caitlin, to uh, Donald Trump. Uh, this is also coming from a uh, deposition of Johanna Schoberg. She was a, an employee of Jeffrey Epstein. And according to her deposition, which was released, that she said that she recalled a time she was with Jeffrey Epstein on one of his planes, uh, and the pilots had said that he needed to land in Atlantic City. Uh, and then she says that Jeffrey said, great, we'll call up Trump and we'll go to, and then she says she doesn't remember the name of the casino in Atlantic City, but we'll go to the casino. Uh, she also then says that in her deposition, there was a question about whether she had any inappropriate uh, contact or relationship with, with Trump, and she says that she never gave a massage uh, to Trump. So here we're seeing uh, Donald Trump's name now, of course, as I mentioned earlier, former President Bill Clinton, and that continues as we continue to look through the documents to see what other prominent people uh, could potentially be named. So she doesn't say in the deposition, based on what we've seen, whether or not that actually, that proposal that Jeffrey Cor Epstein had actually happened? Correct. It's not entirely clear uh, if that ever happens. This is just a claim that she made. This is what she's saying that Epstein said uh, to uh, her, I guess, and the pilots uh, hmm. when the pilots had asked, said they needed to land in Atlantic City. We don't know why they needed uh, to land in Atlantic City. There's no context here. Uh, but, but certainly, obviously, seeing that name. And, and again, uh, we've known uh, that the, the former president, former president uh, Donald Trump, his name has certainly sur surfaced previously uh, with Jeffrey Epstein. A lot of powerful people uh, on edge. Shimon Prokopes, I know you'll continue to go through this and keep us updated. Thank you for that. Also up ahead here tonight, House Speaker Mike Johnson was on the southern border today, speaking also with Jake Tapper while he was there about what he believes needs to be done about the immigration crisis. But House Republicans saying that shutting down the federal government if they don't get what they want is also on the table. Tonight, any fix on the border by lawmakers in Washington looks pretty grim, and I'm putting it nicely. This is the state of play right now. House Speaker Mike Johnson at the southern border tonight as members of his own party are threatening to shut down the government if they don't get what they want on immigration. Speaker Johnson was leading more than 60 House Republicans here on a tour in Eagle Pass. That's in Texas. And Republicans at large are in a standoff right now here in Washington with the White House over implementing stricter immigration policies including restoring some Trump-era policies in exchange for funding on Ukraine, Israel, border funding in there as well from the White House. In Washington, I should note, Republicans say that they're moving ahead also with impeachment proceedings against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of what's happening at the border. President Biden and Senate Democrats, meanwhile, including in talks that Mayorkas is involved in, have signaled an openness on making what the president has said they would be willing to do significant changes but he has blamed House Republicans for, quote, obstructing the talks. Speaker Johnson responded to the president here on CNN earlier with my colleague Jake Tapper. 
what the White House is proposing is more money to process and allow more illegals into the country. We need to do the opposite of that. And this is, you don't need to take my word for it. Listen to the deputy chief of the U.S. Border Patrol who was with us last night. And he told us in his own words, he said, it's as if I'm at an open fire hydrant. I don't need more buckets to, to dump the water. He said, I need to turn the flow off. His argument there being that the issue will not be solved simply with more money. Jake Tapper is here and he joins me now. And Jake, you also asked Speaker Johnson about this threat that, that is coming from House Republicans, not all of them, some of them, to shut the government down if they don't get their immigration changes that they want as a part of this deal. This is what Speaker Johnson told you about that. The House Freedom Caucus, a very important flank in the Republican Party, you're talking about uh, refusing uh, to, to vote uh, f to keep the government open unless HR2 is law. How seriously do you take those threats? Well, look, I don't think it's just the Freedom Caucus. I think you have most House Republicans who are responding to their constituents' concerns about this border. It seems like it's a growing sentiment around these Republicans, Jake. Yeah, I mean, uh, Speaker Johnson has uh, a very narrow majority by the end of the month. I think he'll only be able to lose two votes, two House votes. He'll have 219 seats. Uh, so he can't afford to, to lose anyone, really. Uh, and certainly there is a big crisis at the border, and certainly the federal government is in charge of that. And so they feel as though they have a, a winning issue and an issue where they can apply some pressure points on uh, President Biden. Uh, the problem is, and I've been in this town for a long time, covering immigration battles for a long time. And, and the problem always seems co to come down to the fact uh, that the Senate, even uh, when the House is under Republican control, the Senate is there just aren't 60 votes to support what House Republicans want to do. Um, and that's when whether there's a Republican in the White House or a Democrat in the White House. Uh, and it seems as though we are in the exact same scenario we've been in the past when the issue is a much broader one having to do with larger immigration reform uh, measures, uh, this is one where there are no uh, carrots even being offered uh, to the Democrats within the construct of immigration itself. Uh, and Democrats have actually moved more to the conservative side on so many of these issues. The White House has made, uh, is ready to make a number of concessions, uh, but the Republicans just feel like they don't want to concede almost anything. Yeah, it stood out that, you know, during that interview, he, which at the border, it's obviously a photo op. We've seen Democrats and Republicans do it. I mean, he accused President Biden of when he visited the border of being a photo op. But just the fact that they're not in Washington, where those negotiations are happening, talking to the lawmakers in the Senate, their colleagues in the Senate about actually passing bills that would actually fix this. Because no matter what you talk about, what the president could do here, or, or mayors or other people, it's really Congress that everyone looks to that, that time and time again doesn't actually do anything. Yeah, and look, uh, they have a point, the House Republicans, Speaker Johnson, when it comes to the fact that the federal government is in charge of enforcing the border laws. But the, but the truth of the matter is Congress writes the laws, Congress makes the laws, uh, and the negotiations, as you note, are in the Senate right now. Uh, and they are not proceeding particularly well. And one of the reasons is because whatever they agree to in the Senate has to be signed off on by the House and House Republicans want their bill, H.R. 2, uh, which includes a lot of Trump era uh, border laws uh, that the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says are just a non-starter. 
Uh, and frankly, I don't even know that most Republic that, that well, most Republicans in the Senate would vote for him. But I don't even know that they'd get all uh, Senate Republicans uh, when it comes to H.R. 2. Uh, it's a pretty tough bill uh, on the border. And it doesn't include um, any sort of measures to uh, appease anybody who might be more moderate on the issue, such as, for example, providing a, a, a path to legal status for the dreamers mm-hmm. or any of the other items that might be included in, in a more comprehensive uh, border uh, and immigration measure. Yeah, doesn't seem like anything is coming close to any kind of an agreement. Jake Tapper, great interview. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks, Caitlin. Good to see you. And for more on the migrant crisis, how it's affecting people nationwide, I want to bring in a mayor whose city is being directly impacted by this. Denver Mayor Mike Johnston, not to be confused with House Speaker Mike Johnson. Mayor, <laughs> it's great to have you here tonight. I mean, this is a real issue that, that you're dealing with on a daily basis. And I know that officials in your city have been very firm that it is hitting a breaking point in handling the influx of migrants. I mean, what is the situation in Denver as it stands this evening? Uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me, Caitlin. And you know, we are on the front lines. Denver is right now the single largest recipient per capita of any city in the country in terms of the number of migrants arriving to our city. So we know exactly what we're facing. We know exactly what's not working. I think what's broken about the current situation is you have someone that comes into the border with a valid claim of asylum, folks that have credible fear about their persecution in their country. They get admitted into the country, but Often I talked to a migrant yesterday who has an asylum date that is in 2029. It is six years out till that asylum could get heard because there's a backlog of adjudicative capacity to hear those cases at the border. Then Governor Abbott just decides where to pick those folks up and send them to a small number of American cities that he wants to try to exact political punishment on. And then they arrive in our cities without either the ability to work or federal resources to support them. And so we know the current system isn't working, but it's also actually very clear to us uh, that there is a path that does work here. And that is if we can have folks that arrive with work authorization, with federal support, and with a plan for coordinated entry throughout the country, we actually, as mayors, can make this system work. If we can get, as you said, Congress to actually act on the things we need, which are the federal dollars for support for border staff, the federal dollars for city support, and the work authorization we need to get people to work. Just to quickly follow up on that, you mentioned Governor Abbott busing migrants often to places where they don't intend to go or don't fully know where they're going once once they arrive there or what to do. Your governor has also, I believe, said today that he is also going to have to, to bus migrants to other cities because it is too great of a burden on your state. Is that something that you approve of? I mean, what we try to do is just help people arrive to the destinations they tried to seek. So we have people who came to Denver and they want to be in Denver. We help them integrate and succeed here. We'll have folks that arrive in Denver and say, I never had a plan to go to Denver. I wanted to go to see my family in L.A., but someone put me on a bus to Denver. If you're arriving in the country without a network, without work authorization, without support, we do think it's important we help you arrive to a place where you do have networks and family and support. So we will do that for folks that ask for it. Um, but that's at their own volition, on their own request. We're not forcing folks to go to cities they don't want to, which is what we're getting over and over here. So you, okay, so you're saying it's more that the migrants who are being bused out of Colorado to other places, they know where they're going? Oh, yeah, they're asking for it. They say, I had a family in L.A., can you send me there? I was trying to get to you know, Memphis because I have my cousin there. So it's only if they're choosing it and asking for us to do it, then we help them provide uh, onward travel. But you know, what we see over and over is that the biggest challenge, really, every day I talk to folks in, the, in these uh, sites and they'll say, Mr. Mayor, 
all I want is a chance to work. And at the same time, I'll get calls from employers every day who will say, Mike, I know these folks have arrived. I have open jobs. Can I please hire them? And we need Congress to act because the problem is right now we have people who want to work and employers who want to hire them, uh, and we can't actually connect them to those jobs without some federal policy change. Speaking of that federal policy change, I mean, you've asked the White House and made direct appeals to them to help, saying, you know, you need dollars, you need help getting those those work permits sped up. Do you think the federal government is is listening to those pleas? Are they doing enough to help people like in your city, in Denver, officials like you with this crisis? Yeah, I do think the White House has helped and Secretary Mayorkas has helped. I mean, I spoke with him directly five, six months ago, and we asked him about this work authorization, and and he responded by changing the temporary protective status so that Venezuelans who arrived before August 1st could apply for work authorization. That's why folks were so successfully integrating in this country for the last, you know, six months was because of that policy change. Now, new arrivals in the last two or three months don't have that work authorization. That's why we see more and more folks ending up uh, on the street in encampments or with additional needs. So I think the Biden administration understands this. They understand they want to speed up asylum claims. That's why in this federal supplemental bill, you have dollars for more adjudication at the border. You have dollars for support for cities. And they're trying to expand, I think, the need for work authorization. I think they see what has to get done. The challenges we have, I think, House Republicans who've been trying to hold up those dollars that we need. Well, what do you make of the, the effort by House Republicans to potentially impeach Secretary Mayorkas? I assume you don't agree with that? I think it's exactly the wrong decision. I think he's the reason why our cities have been able to be successful to this date is because he's helped give us the flexibility around work authorization that's helped get folks to work. I mean, what I would say after I listened to that interview Jake did with Speaker Johnson is, you know, I was with a gentleman today who followed me around. I walked through an entire encampment and he at the end just said, uh, Mr. Mayor, look at me, you know. I walked 3,000 miles to get here. I have strong hands. I have a strong back. I have a big heart. I will work anywhere. I just want a job. Can you please help me? And what Republican congressman wants to look that man in the eyes and say, no, no, you can't work. Don't work. Sit on a street corner, beg for money, get caught into a drug subculture, have the city or the state have to support you. Nothing more un-American than denying folks the chance who want to work and support themselves to force them to sit on a street corner and have the cities and the states provide them with essentially welfare state support. That's not what they're asking for. That's not what they need. What they want is a chance to work, and we should give that to them. 3,000 miles. I mean, it's hard to even think about that. Mayor Mike Johnston, thank you for joining us here on The Source tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great evening. Up next, an important question still being raised tonight after two blasts killed more than 100 people in Iran. It has thrown the Middle East into deeper chaos than it already was. It's raised fears of a wider war. The former Trump national security advisor, John Bolton, will join us with his assessment. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Tonight, a senior U.S. official says that a pair of deadly explosions in Iran, quote, look like a terrorist attack and that the M.O. fits with ISIS. State media putting the death toll at more than 100 people after two explosions tore through a crowd in an Iranian city of Kerman today. 
American officials were quick to say that it was not the U.S., that they had no indication either that it was Israel. This is coming four years to the day since that U.S. airstrike took out the Iranian Revolutionary Guards commander, Soleimani. The bombs detonated today, four years after that, near his tomb. Among the more than 100 were killed, many were mourners who were gathered there for the anniversary. Iran's supreme leader is now warning that his country will have a harsh response to this. And all of this is coming, and this is the important context here, as Iran-backed Hezbollah has also been vowing a, quote, limitless response to a strike yesterday that killed a top Hamas leader in Lebanon. Another group backed by Iran, Houthi militias out of Yemen, have launched at least 100 attacks on ships in the Red Sea just over the last month alone. Few have as long of a history in the region as my next guest, John Bolton, who served as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under President George W. Bush, and also, of course, was the national security advisor to former President Trump. So, Ambassador Bolton, great to have you. You know, no one is claiming responsibility for this yet. But if you were in the Situation Room tonight, what would you be looking at? What would, who do you think could be responsible for this? Well, there are a variety of possibilities. I know, uh, as you indicated, uh, U.S. officials have pointed toward ISIS. I I don't think that's plausible. I don't think ISIS has the reach to do that. Uh, I don't think it was Israel. That's not their style. Uh, They don't particularly gain anything out of this. Uh, This this, uh, memorial ceremony was undoubtedly attended by many, many supporters of the regime in Tehran. Uh, which leads me to believe there's a pretty good possibility it was some kind of anti-regime force. Uh, the, the Ayatollahs are in a much weaker position, I think, than people believe, much weaker than at any point since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. My guess is that's it. Or uh, it's just a cynical uh, device by the Ayatollahs themselves. You know, they have immediately uh, pointed the finger at Israel, and if they were looking for a pretext, uh, to take action against Israel directly, uh, now they have it. But uh, you know, m- we'll have to know more. I don't. I don't think you can make a definite response to it at this point. I mean, that latter part. Tensions have been so high in the region since October seventh. I mean, if that is something, and that is what happened here, we don't know yet. No one has taken responsibility for this. I mean, how worried would you be that that would escalate tensions? to where we we could potentially see Iran getting directly involved in what's happening between Israel and Hamas. Well, I think the intensity might go up, but I think the central point is Iran is involved in all of this activity. Uh, This region right now is one chessboard. You have the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea, Hamas obviously in Israel, Hezbollah attacking northern Israel from Lebanon. Shia militia uh, attacking American service members and civilian personnel in in Syria and Iraq. And Iran just last week launching a drone strike against a ship in the Indian Ocean. All of this is being coordinated in Tehran. I don't yet know what their full strategy is, Uh, but they are in the war right now uh, through their proxies. And uh, we are not deterring them. Uh, and I think the risk for, uh, for more intense conflict is real, not because of anything that we're doing, but because of what we're not doing. Also on top of this, as I just mentioned before I introduced you, you know, this killing of this Hamas leader, a senior Hamas leader, we're told, in Lebanon, that the U.S. believes was uh, Israel carrying out that strike. 
What does that say to you about Israel's strategy here? Because I believe, you know, they've said we'll, we'll find these Hamas leaders wherever they are. I mean, I believe this would be the first time that we've seen one killed outside of Gaza. Well, perhaps in this particular conflict, but let's come back to what Israel has said uh, since within days of the October 7 attack. They intend to eliminate Hamas. Now, a lot of people don't seem to believe that. I think uh, uh, this guy believes it in heaven or hell, wherever he is at the moment, because they've, they've uh, uh, taken him off the battlefield. And I, I think it is a signal that they are very determined. And uh, all the talk about how the war is winding down, it's not winding down at all. Look, our advisors told Israel at the beginning it took us nine to 12 months in places like Fallujah and Mosul. We're three months into this. The Israelis have six to nine months more to go in Gaza by that timetable. Interesting to hear you you say you don't think it's close to over. Ambassador John Bolton, obviously many more discussions on this to come. Thanks for joining tonight. And I'm joined now here on SAB by the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense and the Executive Director of the McCain Institute, Evelyn Farkas. I just wonder, you hear what Ambassador Bolton said there, his assessment. I mean, we don't know. I think that's the first and foremost, the most important thing that we should say. No one's claiming credit for this yet. But what do you make of who could be responsible and the significance of who it is that could be responsible for these two attacks? Right. Well, first of all, I don't, I would not agree with him that this would be something cynical that the Iranian government would have launched against As their people. I mean, this is a really sensitive um, commemoration, you know, celebration of this man, memorialization of this <laughs> criminal, frankly, international criminal. They, they wouldn't have done that. It is possible that there's some opposition inside of Iran, but I think what's more likely is that it's some kind of Sunni terrorist organization like ISIS because this fits their modus operandi. There were two explosions, the second one more deadly, that we've seen that all over the world, um, conducted by ISIS and terrorist, Sunni terrorist organizations. So that seems to me more likely. But what's more interesting to me, the bigger picture issue here is, somebody might be trying to send a message to Iran to stop it. You know, mm. you, as you heard from Ambassador Bolton, um, the Iranians are using their proxies in the Red Sea, in Gaza, obviously, in Lebanon, across the border into Israel. And there are Sunnis, you know, who are on the other side of this, who want to stop Iran. And there may be states also who have, are maybe using proxies as well. Which states would you I don't want to point fingers, but clearly we know that Iran has historic enemies. Now they've all kind of reconciled or they're all diplomatically getting along like Saudi Arabia and others in the Gulf. But there may be actors who want to send a signal to Iran to stop. I think, however, having said that, um, I don't know that a state would really condone this kind of um, action because of the target. It's a fascinating thing. We'll wait to see until we get more information. But yeah. thank you for your expertise for joining us tonight. Thanks Evelyn for having Vargas. me on. Really great to have you here on set. Also tonight, as we noted, we are 12 days out from the first votes in the nation in Iowa. The candidates coming out swinging as they make their final closing pitches. One voter tonight accused Governor Ron DeSantis of not swinging hard enough at the front runner. Donald Trump will tell you how Governor DeSantis responded to that right after this. Notable question from a voter in Iowa tonight, just about 24 hours from back-to-back town halls here on CNN with Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Mind you, boy, uh, they're going pretty soft now. 
So I think what the media wants is, is they want Republican candidates to just kind of like smear him personally and kind of do that. That's just not how I roll. I don't think Donald Trump ultimately can win an election. Karen Finney, Scott Jennings, both here to talk about the latest in politics with me tonight. Scott, let me start with you because you heard that answer from Governor DeSantis saying you he didn't want to smear Trump. I mean, Trump has no problem, as we all know, smearing him on a daily basis. He says that he has a very different style than the former president. What did you make of the fact that the voter asked that question and how he answered it? Well, there there is a small cohort of voters who want somebody in the primary or just in politics generally to smear or go after Donald Trump as frankly in the way Chris Christie is. But that's just not the DeSantis audience. It's not the way he's conducted himself. You point out that Trump has attacked him, but for DeSantis to win and to overcome Donald Trump, he would have to peel some Donald Trump voters back his way and smearing him personally and going after him in the, in the manner that the person was suggesting is probably not the way to achieve it. So I actually think DeSantis handled it is about as best as he could. I don't think running at this stage of the late stage of the Iowa caucus, sort of a, you know, a personal attack or smear campaign against Trump is, is going to work for DeSantis. I mean, it's going to be hard to beat Trump out there, but I, I doubt that tactic would be successful. Yeah. Karen, as you saw that response, what did you make of I wondered if that was a Nikki Haley plant, that question, because if you're Nikki Haley, you want to make, because her narrative now about DeSantis is that he's weak, right, and that he can't win. So, but at the same time, I agree. I mean, DeSantis has been harder than any, well, I guess with the exception of uh, Chris Christie, but he's tried to go at Trump around he can't win and, you know, he didn't build a wall. Here's the problem that DeSantis has it's all in for him on Iowa. If he doesn't, at this point, if you take a look, he spent more time in Iowa. He's not on the air in New Hampshire. He's so far back in New Hampshire. If he doesn't pull it out in Iowa, which I don't think is likely, because that's, you know, there's too much ground to make up in, in two weeks. So for him, this is do or die, I think. And does do or die, Scott, look like coming in a strong second? I mean, would that be even something that would be surprising to to Republicans who have been watching the DeSantis campaign? I mean, we've seen Nikki Haley saying today that they think it would be a success for her to come in second place in Iowa. Yeah, obviously, this is a lot of just expectation setting for DeSantis. I think coming in second and getting closer to Trump than the polls might indicate uh, would be a measure of success. If he got within single digits, that would be hugely successful. For Haley, Really, all she has to do is just get slightly ahead of DeSantis, and that would be, I think, considered a huge night for her, even if she's far back of Trump, just finishing in second place, which people have not been thinking about uh, until very recently, would be successful. For Trump, you know, he's crushing in the polls. He does have high expectations here, and the trouble with high expectations is that they're high, and you do have to meet them. Uh, and so, you know, for him, what, what does success look like? I think it's a, a double-digit victory would be successful. If he meets or exceeds what the polls would say, that's going to be a huge amount of momentum for Donald Trump. So they're all playing a little bit different game when it comes to expectations. But I agree with Karen. For uh, Ron DeSantis, if he doesn't meet whatever those expectations are, it's going to be hard to go on. Karen, do you agree with that? Absolutely. I think I also think Haley is trying to focus on New Hampshire and then a bank shot into South Carolina. I think, again expectations lower for her in Iowa. Yeah. Well, in New Hampshire, that will be critical. We've seen Trump with yes. the new ad there. Uh, Karen Finney, we will continue to watch to see what closely yeah. happens just 12 days from now. Scott Jennings as well. Thank you both for being here. And tomorrow night, for all of you at home, here at 9 o'clock,
tune in as CNN is going to host back-to-back -back town halls with Governor Ron DeSantis and Governor Nikki Haley. They're going to take questions directly from Iowa voters just days before the Iowa caucuses. I'll moderate the town hall with Governor DeSantis at 9 p.m. Eastern. Aaron Burnett will moderate one with Governor Nikki Haley right after that. You are not going to want to miss it. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.